Welcome. I'm crying. Time. I'm cr- I'm time, right? I'm crime. You're right. time. Yeah, that's how it's it goes. Crime and time <laughs> on the rocks. What is on our rocks today? Actually, not on rocks in a fabulous martini glass, straight up. What so is it? So this gold tone jewel. It's really actually growing on me, the color. Yes. It's pretty. It's very golden, much much like our golden state. And that brings me to the name of the cocktail. It is. Why would you equate the name of this cocktail to our golden state? It is the earthquake. The earth. Okay. It's very appropriate. So it's an ounce of dry gin, uh-huh. an ounce of rye whiskey. Okay. And an ounce of Pernod. What is Pernod, you might ask? I'm definitely asking what is Pernod given the smell. That You're I'm not going to like it. Yeah. So basically, Pernod is the leading brand of absinthe. And I didn't use Pernod brand because. Why didn't we just use the absinthe we already own? We did use the absinthe. Oh, we did use the absinthe we already own. Any chance to use it? Because I want it gone. But it is a gorgeous color. Do you know how long we've color. had that absinthe? Yeah. Since the last century. Yeah. <laughs> Nuh uh. We've not had that absence okay. since the last century. Yeah, you're right. It's you're only right. six years old. Okay. Can we try it? Uh, what a perfectly good waste of good whiskey. This glass is gorgeous, by the way. It's from the Mad Men party. So it's no one came a classic it. martini style glass with gold flecks. Yes. And this cocktail has, it literally kind of looks like it's shining gold from the bottom. It I mean, it's is, very, yeah. very pretty. That Child was not breakfast. an alarm. That was toast. So I'm trying <laughs> right. this. Okay. Before we're I toast. I guess I will. Yeah. Ooh. That'd be a no for me. It's all alcohol. I don't mind the alcohol. It's the absinthe. See, I don't mind the absinthe. Well, then guess who's getting two? (laughs) I'm going to take another sip. It'll grow on you. No, it will not. No, it will not. Okay, we'll get your back up. Yeah. Beer-flavored water to the rescue. So you have a story for me? (sighs) Let me enjoy another sip of my delicious... (laughs) You're going to have to either edit out the name of my beer or edit out when I accidentally accidentally called it beer-flavored water because I don't want to get sued. We didn't say the name of the beer. I know, but I was about to. Insert your favorite Favorite brand of light beer. beer here. (laughs) Okay, one more drink. Yes, I do have a story for you. Since we were talking about an earthquake, I, of course, went California-centric because I feel like I'm very California-centric on my history choices. It's natural. It's what we grew up learning yeah. about. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, so I did a little research on what an earthquake is. And an earthquake is obviously the shaking of the Earth's surface as a result of the Earth's crust shifting around. Um, this is an interesting quote from geologypage.com. Um, it says, quote, The plate boundaries are made up of many faults. And most earthquakes are Like I am. Many faults. Many faults. Oh, faults are fissures and cracks in our character. Oh, that's a metaphor. No, that's actually <laughs> it's a simile. <laughs> no, it's not a simile because it doesn't have as or like. Uh, like. Oh, did I say like? You did say like. Okay, never mind. Okay. There's a simile. Okay. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> the plate boundaries are made up of many faults, and most of the earthquakes around the world occur over these faults. Since the edges of the plates are rough, They get stuck while the rest of the plate keeps moving. And finally, when the plate has moved far enough, the edges unstick along one of the faults and there is an earthquake. 
Okay. Exact quote from geologypage.com. They must be right. They must be right. So California's largest fault is called the San Andreas Fault. It has five main branches. And according to... The legislative, the judicial, and the executive. (laughs) No, that's our state government. This is our state fault. Okay. (laughs) I could make a really bad political joke right now, but I'm not going to insert bad joke here. So this is from iflscience.com. Um, but another source that I found said it had eight, 800 miles, and that was on interestingfacts.tv. So I don't know, 1250 or 800, whatever you'd like. But anyhow, it runs the length of California, basically. And on iflscience.com, they said that the Pacific plate is pulling away from the North American plate at a rate of 2.5 inches per year. Which seems that astronomical. Seems to me. alarming. Yes, and it also makes me wonder: Are we going to get charged on the extra? Are we going to get charged property taxes on the extra land? Yeah, I hope not. Yeah, that, California though probably would say yes. Right. <laughs> but yes, that seems very alarming. I don't understand how the Earth can actually grow two and a half inches and buildings not fall apart. I. Th- th- that's just too much to me. Two yes. point. Yeah. I, I. I don't know. Maybe they're right. It seems too extreme. Yeah. But anyway. So one, this is um, our main fault line that runs through our state. And one of the major quakes that happened along the San Andreas Fault was on April 18th in 1906. It struck at um, 5.13 a.m. The shaking lasted an entire minute. Oh, gosh. Yes. So I'm going to tell you about a couple earthquakes that I've been in later on. And they were like six seconds, if Mm -hmm. that. An entire minute of shaking would be harrowing. Well, years ago when I was in elementary school, we went to um, whatever museum, I can't remember, in San Francisco, and they had a simulator where you stood on this platform thing, and of course, it's California, so you had to, like, hold on to grips, and, you know, it was like... (laughs) Even back then? Yeah. And... (laughs) It shook the same like way and the same length of time that the San Francisco 1906 earthquake shook. Uh-huh. And I remember like being like, is this not going to stop? It's not going to stop. Wow. So yeah. I can't even imagine. I read a couple of um, firsthand accounts. So I'm going to tell some of those um, later on. And it's crazy scary. I don't know. But anyway, so at 5.13 a.m. was the epicenter. It was just offshore of San Francisco. Um, the shaking could be felt all the way from the southern, southern Oregon in the north to L.A. in the south and as far east as Nevada. Over 3,000 people. They estimate that it was a 7.7 to a 7.9. Oh, wow. Yeah. Over 3,000 people died. 2,800 buildings. No, 28,000 buildings were destroyed. And 250 people were left instantly homeless. Um the earthquake itself was devastating, but the biggest problem afterwards was the fires. And I'll talk a lot about the fires. But so that was the biggest, that caused the bulk of the devastation. Um, the fires went on for days and days because they really didn't have an efficient method for putting it out because the water mains broke. Yeah. So there's no water. Well, and everything was just, I mean, it was 1906. Yeah. So it wasn't. So this one man tells a story. He was a little boy and he was standing on the corner and he watched this firefighter come up, couple a hose to the fire hydrant, swear, uncouple it, roll it up and throw it on the wagon and took off because there was no water. He couldn't do anything. It was He couldn't do anything. Yeah. No. I wonder if they had like water trucks, but even if so, they were probably very limited. Yeah. 
and there's all kinds of rubble and everything. It was mm-hmm. just a mess. But so fires. One of the major fires was started on actually at 395 Hayes Street. There is a what stands there now? It's called the Cafe Deli Stella. It's a very famous Italian restaurant that's there now. But this was her house at the time. I've not been there. So she got up <laughs> and decided, well. I guess I should make breakfast. The world's going to end and I may as well eat. So she goes to make breakfast. She doesn't know that her chimney was damaged. And she starts a fire that bla- that blazes for 24 hours. It was called the ham and eggs fire. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. There were major fires all over. They just kept popping up and popping up. Well, at the Winchester Mystery House, um, there was like a wing of the house that Sarah Winchester was living in that was walled was it- off. And yeah, and wasn't she like trapped under yeah, rubble she was or trapped. something? It wasn't like under rubble. Like her room was fine, but she was trapped from being able to get it out or anybody being able to get in. Oh, crazy. I remember hearing that on a podcast. Yeah. Um, so one of the ways that they came up with to fight the fire, there's a couple of... One way makes total sense. They started um, just blowing down buildings. So if there's, if the fire's coming and there's a building, they'll just, they would blow it up and knock it down because then they were hoping that that would stop. But one of the ways that they thought, this doesn't make much sense to me, that they thought they would stop the fire was by destroying all the liquor in town. Uh, that doesn't make sense. No, because the liquor's in a glass bottle or now the liquor is soaking into the wood everywhere around you. I would think yeah. that would make the wood more flammable. It does right? seems to make less sense than yes. just leaving it in the bottle. Yes. They also said that that was, um, they were trying to forestall any looting or rioting over the booze. Okay, that's probably the real reason. Yeah. But they said they firefighters were going to make it easier mm-hmm. to help fight the fire. But there was over $30,000 worth of liquor was destroyed. And I think that's tragic. That's sad. <laughs> it's very sad. <laughs> um, the total damage was over four. 100 million in 1906 dollars which would equal about to 8.2 billion dollars today oh that's mind-blowing yes um 500 city blocks were destroyed they lost three thousand oh i said that already um it was it was bad it took nine years oh and another thing with the fire this i thought was kind of funny they think that some people's property more people's property was damaged than really needed to be because they might have had insurance for fire but not insurance for earthquake and the rest of the city's on fire so why shouldn't their house be too can you blame them no oh my gosh heck no no i kind of not to get back to what we talked about several weeks ago but with the campfire i kind of feel sorry for the people who not that I don't feel sorry for the people who lost their home. 100% it's devastating, devastating. But there were other people who didn't lose their home, but... They can't live in it. They can't live in it. All of their linens and maybe their soft furniture was destroyed. A friend of mine, her all of her linens, all of her soft furniture, new carpet, new drywall, and... Um, and you can't get people to do any work destroyed. right now. No. So they... they I mean, they'll get insurance. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, so it took nine full years to rebuild the city, but they jumped back pretty quickly. Streetcars started running again on Market Street. They replaced the cable cars in just a couple of weeks. The banks were open and back up for business in six weeks. And by July, the San Francisco Chronicle had returned to its headquarters on Kearney Market and Geary Street. How long till Starbucks was back? Um, they were back the next day. They were selling coffee like an hour later. I mean, it was just, there is no keeping that coffee down. Right back up. Bam. 
The San Francisco earthquake was one of the, it was the first major disaster, natural disaster to be photographed. And it kept bringing up every research that I did, kept bringing up, which was, I have a ton of sources, um, kept bringing up that just a few months later, some guy developed a colorization process to make colored 3D pictures and you could watch them in the little thing. So I wonder if that was that. Do you remember those little slide things that yeah. you put the two, it had, the mm -hmm. card had two pictures that were identical yeah. and you stuck them in the little thing and you moved it back and forth. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that was that. It could have been that. Because those are really cool. But so they said he developed that just a few months later and took pictures of the rebuilding. <clears throat> so the San Francisco quake and the fact that things were like totally fine one minute and then the next minute the world is falling apart really spurred scientists to start working on the early monitoring and warning system for earthquakes. And that came from whatcausesearthquakes.com and they actually credit this quake and the discoveries made after it with saving tons of lives. That's interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought it would have been that early on yeah. but that they immediately Morning tried to start put in place yeah start thinking of it one thing that i read was a um story from a survivor bill bond barton um he said in an interview that he remembers distinctly kissing his mother goodnight and her saying say your prayers before you go to bed and was that he a little boy he was or? a little boy and that was last time he saw his family oh my gosh so during the quake he and his bed he must have had a bed close by the window because he he said he and his bed were pitched out the window he was oh pitched out the window on his bed um he broke his jaw one arm two legs he had a slice cut out of his nose and he said his eyebrow was dangling by a thread and then he said in the interview it was really cute that i was reading he says see how it's crooked now <laughs> like, oh, that's so cute um People reported in the same article, reported evacuating to a place and then they'd sit there and they'd sit on the porch and watch the fire burn. And then it would get close enough. They need to evacuate to another place back like all three days. Um, the army came in and put up military tents. There was like a tent city um, where people stayed. The last known survivor interestingly died in 2006. He was only three months old at the time and he died at age 109. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. The Edith Grant that I mentioned. So this was so cool. I'm just cruising around the internet and I find this. It said earthquake survivor and I clicked on it and it was a this family's backyard barbecue and they're playing with their new video camera. This I didn't say what year it was made, but it had to have been pretty reasonably early on. And they're interviewing old Aunt Edith, who was an 11 month old in the earthquake and they interviewed her on this camera. Oh, it gosh. only had 17 views, which it's fascinating. Anyway, so Edith Grant, she was 11 months old and she's telling the story that her mother had told her hundreds of times, she says. So her mother was incredibly pregnant. She was about five or six months pregnant. Her mother wakes up from the shaking, tries to wake her husband up and he says, it's fine, go back to bed. Like, you know, most husbands probably did. Um, she didn't want to go back to bed, so she kept pestering and kept pestering him. So he finally said, okay, fine, I'll get up. They put on their clothes. She already had the baby, Edith, in the buggy. And they get downstairs, and as soon as they get to the bottom of the stairs, the stairs collapse. Oh, no. Yeah, so they made it down. I mean, oh, good, but... All of their stuff is upstairs. Yeah. They have the clothes on their back and their baby buggy. So they're going outside. They went outside, and the mother reported that it was just crazy people are screaming yelling they lived in the downtown area um they were he was a russian immigrant his 
Edith said, and I don't think they'd been there very long, but so they heard people yelling out of hotel windows and screaming. And I guess the mother like looked up the street and saw a building just collapse in on itself. Oh. Just like drop. That like reminds me of 9-11 Completely. kind of style. Yes, yes. That's what I pictured when she was talking. So they're going down the street. They don't know where to go, but they just kept moving. And finally, one of their neighbors, they see, oh, this part. This part was kind of, you know, interesting. But anyway, so mom falls down and she can't get up. Two men come and they try to help her up, but she can't get up. And I guess Edith's mother's mother, so her grandmother had passed away when the mother was eight years old. And the mother would always talk about wanting to hear her mother's voice, missing her mother's voice. So she fell down. She couldn't get up. These men are trying to get her up because it's mayhem. And the mother says she heard her mother yell in Yiddish, my child, you have to get up. And then she got up. Yeah, kind of cute. Happen. Yeah, totally. So they lost everything. They just had what they had on. They finally see a wagon full of people, and one of their neighbors was on the wagon. It was completely full, but the neighbor said, we will find room. So they put the mom and dad see- seated down somewhere, and they took the baby buggy, 1906, and tied it with ro- rope <laughs> to the roof of the wagon. So it's probably one of those like things that has a thing over the cab. Mm-hmm. So they tied the baby buggy up there. And they tied it down really good with rope. She reiterated that a few times. Um, And then they just kept going. So they made it to Golden Gate Park, but it took all day to get across the city to Golden Gate Park. Edith said that her parents told her they never heard a peep from her. She was just quiet all day long. I know, she's probably scared to death. So... (laughs) So they finally get up there and get her down and she's fine. They were worried because they hadn't heard anything, but her diaper is steaming. (laughs) So this poor baby's not had any food and has been like sitting in her own mess to the point where it's steaming off of her. Poor thing. I know. But so they got everything situated. They made it to the tent city with the military tents. And they lived there for a week until the um, her father's brother found them and took them to live with their father's parents in Sacramento. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, another man reported waking up to the shaking. And their house still stood. But they went downstairs and went outside. And it was just a mad scene. So they went back inside. But every time they would hear a little shake, they'd run back downstairs. And finally, they got tired of running up and down, and they kind of felt like they were probably safer outside. So they it sounded like they must have been kind of removed from the city because they were able to stay in their house. So they came downside, and they made like a little camping spot downstairs in in their yard they hollowed out a place in the yard and made a little brick oven and mom went in to get some food and she came back down and grandpa came with more food and they stayed there for like three or four days and they would listen to the buildings being blown up in the background at night Mm. and the mom and aunt would take turns staying up to watch how close the fire was getting so it was really a kind of a cute little story with him talking he says i think that i as a little kid enjoyed it and it would have been fun had it not been for the circumstances. So it was one of those things where the kid probably doesn't really know the danger. Yeah, it's yeah. just, hey, we're camping in the backyard. It probably was somewhat fun. Yeah. So that was the 1906 earthquake. Um, I had the privilege of getting to go to Europe between my junior and senior year. Child wanted to, oh, I guess I can hear this. Between my junior and senior year in high school, and I met a boy. And he was from Ireland. And he was working as a bellboy in London at the London Hotel where we were staying. And, you know... Yada, yada, yada. Teenage. Teenage. 
we're in love and we're going to just be together forever and so he moves back to Ireland to get a job so that he can come here to live and he we would write each other a letter once a week so that we each had a letter to read once a week and then he bought a typewriter specifically to write me letters and um, I said oh no don't use the typewriter use you have to write so that your hand has touched the letter I mean like you know yeah, barf. barf but when you're 16 that's love so anyway, that that was going on, us writing letters back and forth in um, 1989. Mm-hmm. So on October 17th, San Francisco had their second major earthquake, or not, maybe not their second, they had another major earthquake. Um, it had 63 deaths, 3,800 injuries, and $6 billion in damage. Yeah, that one I it was huge. definitely vividly remember, because my family... Wasn't it during the World Series? It yeah, was the Battle of the Bay? It was during the World Series. My dad had been at some of those games, not the pr- one during that Oh my day. gosh! Yeah, because... That's crazy. My dad was a hardcore A's fan, uh-huh. and he had season tickets to the A's that season, and so he was able to get World Series tickets, but he wasn't at that one. He had been at others. We've been friends for how many years and I did not know this? Well, I mean, he wasn't at the one. He was at others. He could have been at the one. He could have been at the one. That's still really yeah. cool and yeah. scary. But so anyway, um, the news was reporting in other parts of the world, apparently, that part of California had broken off <laughs> and was just gone. And so this young man was absolutely terrified for me and he called me, which in 1989, calling from Ireland to the United yeah. States was huge. Like, beyond. my mom said no. <laughs> so, beyond long distance. Beyond. But so he called me to make sure that I was okay because he had heard that California had just dropped into the ocean and was gone. And this is before Twitter or the internet. Oh, or, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is in the dark ages. So I talked, said I talked about my earthquake experience. I've been in two. Um, it was a last day of a job where they had one of those little, there was like the open cubicle thingies. It was my very last day and I felt someone shaking my chair and I was very annoyed because I had a lot to do. And I turned around to yell at this person to leave me alone and let me finish. And then we would go have cake in the break room later. And I turned around and there was no one there. Was that the Reading one? The one by Eureka? It may have been. It was in like 2000 or 2001. Okay. The one I'm talking about was before that because I was still in high school and it was somewhere I was in Reading and I was at my section swim meet. Uh Uh-huh. And I had just finished a race and I was talking to my dad. So you were in the pool? No, I was out of the pool. pool. I was out of the pool and I was talking to my dad and I was like holding on to his, or I was like behind him. He was sitting at like his little lawn chair thing Uh that dad sit at. And he (laughs) turned around, he goes, stop shaking my chair. And I'm like, I'm not shaking your chair. And I thought that's so funny. Yeah. I thought I was just like woozy from the race. Like I still hadn't got my sea legs. Uh And so I didn't even really notice anything, but sure enough, we had just had an earthquake and it was like one of the ones that happened in Eureka area. Huh? Yeah. I don't know. But you yeah, could was feel it in Reading. Yeah. Interesting. And then the last one was just a few years ago. We lived in this house and it was very boring. The girls were upstairs and I was sitting on my bed and husband <laughs> was at a gas station. And I remember that because I when I figured out that we were having an earthquake and my it was actually kind of fun sitting in the middle of my bedpan bills because the whole thing was just shaking and rolling. <laughs> but when I figured most out most fun that, you'll ever have paying bills. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not the most fun I'll ever have in my bed. But um, <laughs> when I figured out that husband was at the gas station, that was a little scary because it was like, you know, gas. Yeah. So we texted, he was fine. He was like, what the hell? But hey, earthquake. Earthquake. You know, up here we don't get them too bad, knockwood. 
So, so what is your story? Did mine relate? Yes. Yay! So I am going to tell you about the man who thought that he could prevent an earthquake by killing people. Oh, so he's crazy. So his name is Herbert Mullen, and he was born on April 18th, 1947 in Salinas, California. Okay. So you might wonder why yeah, I emphasize the fact that he was born on that date, because... April 18th is the anniversary of the San Francisco 1906 earthquake. Okay. So he so, thought there was going to be another one on the same day. I don't know that he thought it was going to happen on the same day, but it was always in his mind as a significant thing because of the anniversary. Got you. I'm going to lean back here because I keep smelling your drink and it's gross. Okay. Don't let that stop you. If you want to try the earthquake, it might be good to someone else. So he had a fairly normal childhood. Um, his dad was a World War II veteran. His mom was fervidly religious to the point that Herbert's father called the household oppressively religious. So, I mean, it's not super typical, but it also wasn't out of the norm. Like, he was like a regular kid. Yes, but we've listened to enough or murder podcasts and criminal podcasts to know that, you know, oppressively anything... Yeah, it doesn't always mean... Tends to make... Yeah. Not such good childhoods. So Herbert was a normal teen as well. He was into athletics. He was very bright. He was voted most likely to succeed when he graduated from high school. Wow. Mm -hmm. Voted most likely to succeed. Yeah. Very, Interesting. Very clean cut boy. And then right after high school, Herbert's best friend Dean was killed in an auto accident. Oh. So this changed Herbert. What year is this? Not James. He <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, he was born in 47, so it was 65, probably, when he graduated I know, I just made a bad joke. Yeah. What do you want, child? Sit on you. So, the Dean's death is something that appears to have triggered signs of schizophrenia in Herbert. Uh, Herbert built a shrine to his dead friend in his bedroom. Oh, my. And he began to obsess about things like reincarnation, religion, and natural disasters. He also started using drugs, including huge doses of acid. Was he actually diagnosed with schizophrenia? Not at this point. Okay. But this drug use made everything worse. Like, his mental health got a lot worse. Well, yeah. Um, you hear all kinds of scary, scary stuff about acid. Yeah, and his family was very concerned. And by the age of 21, he um, began the first of many hospital stays. They were both voluntary and involuntary. One of the doctors gave him a prognosis of poor, and Herbert was not able to stick to the medications that he was prescribed, and by 23, his prognosis went from poor to grave. Oh my. And Those at, are actual medical prognosis terms that they use. Yeah, in the 60s. Poor and grave. So by the age of 23, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia officially by three doctors. Okay. Um, you go. Why? Cause and put dog, big dog and little dog outside. No, they're making noise. The tip tap tapping you hear is big dog. The growling is little dog. So as Herbert's schizophrenia worsened, he began to develop bizarre thoughts related to the deadly 1906 San Francisco earthquake. What was his connection to that though? What was just his date of birth? He was. Oh, he was born. He was born on April 18th, and oh, it happened on April 18th, just you know, 41 years earlier. Right. So, in 1972, coincidentally, a mathematician had predicted that the San Andreas Fault would once again 
cause a devastating earthquake in California, and the mathematician predicted that it would happen on January 4th of 1973. Oh, that's interesting. I'm glad I was in Hawaii. I wasn't born. (laughs) (laughs) I was not in April. By January, though, of 73, I was around, but I was in Hawaii. So... Herbert had already connected earthquakes with his birthday, like we just talked about. Yeah. And then the voices... Because he's yeah, not the, okay. The voices in his head told him that human sacrifice was the key to preventing this next disaster. Oh, those silly voices. Yeah. So on October 13th of 1972, the killings began. Herbert found a baseball bat in the garage and he went for a drive. So earlier that week... Herbert had claimed to have been receiving telepathic messages from his father telling him to kill. Was his father deceased? No, his father was still alive. So he's just sending him telepathic messages to kill Yes, yes. With the baseball bat. Yes. So Herbert was driving through the Redwoods. Um, they lived in, like, Santa Cruz area. Oh, okay. So he came upon a transient who was walking alone. He passed him, pulled his car over, and popped the hood on the 58 station wagon. And he pretended to be having car trouble. Okay. So he's methodical enough to know that he's got to get this guy to stop on his own. Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it'll come into play later. So he pretended to be having car trouble. The homeless man, whose name was Lawrence White, stopped to help. And when he did, Herbert Mullen bludgeoned him with the baseball bat. He pushed Lawrence White's body down the side of the road and he drove off. That's so sad. Um, you stop. It's making noise. Yeah. Weird. Stop. Weird farting noises on our podcast is not cool. It's an exercise ball, not anyone's butt. <laughs> That's sad. He's just stopping to do a good deed, he thinks. But it's interesting, though, that this guy has the wherewithal to know he needs to lure someone. But he's crazy enough to think that if he murders people... An earthquake will be prevented. Well, he's interesting because he's like kind of like this dual, like he definitely has it together in a lot of ways, uh-huh. but then he's definitely like plain old, like out of his mind in other ways. Huh. It's really interesting. Well, it makes sense that that's how it works. I, I mean, I had a train of thought and it drove off. Um, so. Do trains drive? Choo-choo'd off. <laughs> Better. <laughs> So Mullen later claimed that that um, Lawrence White reminded him of Jonah from the Bible, and that because he was in a fish. Yeah, no, but that <laughs> and that White gave Herbert telepathic messages to kill me so that others will be saved. Oh my goodness, you're a lot right now. I just accidentally knocked it off the chair. Uh, it was an accident. Okay, love you. So then on October 24th, Herbert came upon his second victim, Mary Gibson. How far away from that was the first one? The first one was October 13th, and the second one was October 24th, and this was Mary Guilfoyle. Okay. So, what, 11 days later, something like that. Um, Guilfoyle was a college student who had been hitchhiking. Um, Don't hitchhike. Yeah, especially around Santa Cruz during this time, and I'll get to that in a minute. But Mullen... um, Stabbed her, dismembered her, and then scattered her remains along the side of the road. Oh my gosh. 
So Herbert Mullen was active in the Santa Cruz area, like we're discussing, at the exact ta- exact same time as Edmund Kemper, who was the one. Is who- he the garbage bag killer? He's the co-ed killer. He was the one that was picking up hitchhikers that were college co-eds and killing them. Wasn't there somebody around that time that was putting people in garbage bags? Um, I don't know if Edmund Kemper did that or not. Mm. Anyway, I listen to too many podcasts. But yeah, Edmund Kemper was the one that like his mom worked at UC Santa Cruz. So he had the sticker that showed that he was there and he was picking uh-huh. up women from Cabrillo College and Santa Cruz and... He was killing them. So with this guy changing his me- his method from bludgeoning to stabbing and dismembering, they're not going to be able to connect it anyway. Well, yeah. And I mean, I don't even... Th- that part of Mullen was not calculated. Like, he didn't say, oh, I'm going to change my method because of this, that, or this. Yeah, he, he just saw someone and he killed yeah, them. Yeah, it just happened. Yeah. But um, then November 2nd, so like a week after Mary Guilfoyle, Herbert Mullen walked into a Catholic church to confess... Um, he gave confession to Father Henri Tomei, and then he beat and stabbed him. And Father Tomei died in the confessional. Okay, you can't see this, but I'm making completely like, oh my goodness, that's ridiculous motions. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. I was about to say something like, well, the priest has to tell, I think, but... Not now. Not now. Yeah. So now it's 1973. The January date had passed. No earthquake, no earthquake had come as the mathematician had so previously he, predicted. He stopped and went away, right? He went to the hospital and... Well, n- no. This led, <sighs> this led Herbert to believe that his sacrifices were keeping disaster at bay. Oh my goodness. So... He thinks it worked. On January 25th, 1973... So just a few weeks after the predicted earthquake date, Mullen killed five people in one day. The first was Jim Gianera, who was- Because if a little works, a lot will be better. Exactly right. (laughs) Oh, God. Kind of like Elvis Presley. When he heard yogurt was good for you, he would eat like 30 in a day. (laughs) I have not ever heard that. That's funny. So- Elvis, yogurt, little's good, lots better. Killed five people in a day. Absurd. The first was Jim Gianera- an acquaintance of Mullins, and he also killed Jim's wife, Joan. They were both shot and stabbed. Then Mullen killed another acquaintance, Kathy Francis, and her two young sons, Damon and David. They were killed in the same manner as the Gianneras. Oh. So a little interesting, like, part of the reason why he went for these people is because he was just adamantly against the hippie culture and they in his mind they had something to do with the hippie culture whether it was because they had referenced drugs at some point or they lived a more like homeopathic lifestyle his friend and their neighbor and they were acquaintances they weren't friends wow yeah okay yeah so then on february 10th mullen ran across four teenage boys in a state park The teens had invited Mullen to their camp after finding him wandering around the forest, and he ended up shooting all four of them in their tent while they were trapped inside. So the boys were David Olicker, Robert Spector, Brian Card, and Mark Dribelbis. And the bodies were discovered a week later, but by that time, Mullen had already killed again. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So February 13th, Before the boys were even found, 72-year-old Fred Perez was working in the driveway of his home when he was shot and killed by Mullen. 
A neighbor witnessed Perez's murder and was able to get Mullen's license plate, and Mullen was arrested shortly thereafter. Oh, that's good. Yeah. My high school Spanish teacher was named Fred Perez. Oh. I don't think it's the same guy. It's not the same guy, because this person died in 1973. Yes, and Mr. Perez Perez just died a couple years ago. Yeah. So once at the police department, Mullen refused to talk. He wouldn't even answer routine questions like, do you have an attorney? The only thing he would say is silence, which he chanted over and over and over. Oh, my. Yeah. So they knew that they were not dealing with someone who had a full deck. Right. So then he was brought to a cell once the investigators realized they weren't going to get him to talk. And once he was in his cell, he announced, you people were responsible for the three million killed in WW2. That doesn't even connect with the earthquake. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Oh, this poor guy. He not there. So the jail doctor who examined Mullen was surprised by the tattoos that Mullen had on his abdomen. Like I said, he was very clean cut. His appearance, Mm -hmm. like even as a schizophrenic, which a lot of times they don't take really good care with their personal hygiene. Mullen was very clean cut, except for he had all these tattoos. He had one that says legalize acid. Um, Another one that said eagle eyes marijuana. Eagle eyes? Eagle eyes. Eagle eyes. Not Not, legalize. Not legalize. Eagle Eagle eyes. eyes. (laughs) Like the bird and eyeballs. And then another one that read birth Mahashma Hadi. And another one that said Kriya Yoga. The tattoo artist didn't question eagle eyes marijuana. I feel like maybe this wasn't a tattoo artist more than a tattooer. That's probably true. (laughs) Different things. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Eagle eyes. Okay. Eagle eyes it. Eagle eyes it. (laughs) Hey, wait, they did. (laughs) So the doctor, of course, thought these were really strange tattoos for someone who looked very clean cut and stated that he hated hippies. Because these were all new agey kind of things back then, especially. Acid and marijuana in the 60s -hmm. were very hippie-ish, I think. So then police searched Herbert's apartment. He'd only been living in it for a few weeks because he had just moved out of his parents' house. Oh, his poor parents. Yeah. In it, they found a Bible, a book about Einstein, an address book with a listing for Jim Gianera, one of the deceased. Oh, wow. also newspaper articles about the murders. Was that one of the the acquaintances that was one of the acquaintances so okay. they weren't friends by any means like there's no connection that they were very that they were ever friendly but uh-huh. they knew each other so they also found a note and the note read quote unquote let it be known to the nations of earth and the people that inhabit it this document carries more power than any other written before such a tragedy as what has happened should not have happened and because of this action which i take of my own free will and making it possible to occur again. For while I can be here, I must guide and protect my dynasty. Okay. Yeah, I don't really understand it either. At first, I kind of thought that he was saying, he was telling that he was the one responsible for preventing the earthquakes. Mm -hmm. But then it took a different turn. Yeah, it's not, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Maybe like, maybe it's just me, but. Oh, I'm just sad. I'm sad for the victims. I'm sad for his family. It's just sad. Yeah. So Mullen was charged with 10 counts of murder. He wasn't charged for the first three initially. Um, The DA was named Peter Chang. And he said, we must be the murder capital of the world right now. 
And that's also because of the murders attributed later to Edmund Kemper. Oh, right. Yeah. I wonder if they ever thought that they were the same person. They did for certain ones, like uh-huh. especially the Mary Guilfoyle one because she was a hitchhiker and she was a woman. Uh-huh. But um, anyway, Herbert Mullen was assigned a public defender, but he insisted on representing himself. And he pointed at his lawyer and said, I don't care to be represented by a long hair. Oh my goodness. Apparently the public defender had a shaggier haircut, but it was still short and it was just barely below his collar. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like he had like literally long and hair. And this was what year? 70... 74, 73. Okay. Um, so so the... most of the whole hippie culture thing that he says he's rebelling against is kind of Over. on its way out. Yeah. And if you remember the 70s, like everybody had longer hair, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like if your hair's like to your collar, that wasn't a big deal. No, that was average. Yeah. So the public defender was James Jackson, and he later went on to represent the other serial killer from Santa Cruz, Edmund Kemper. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the judge refused to let Mullen defend himself. Well, that's not a smart move. What's that saying? Well, <laughs> so that brings me to the next thing. Psychiatrists were called in to examine Mullen. Uh-huh. Um, everyone, like everyone, agreed that Herbert Mullen killed at least the 10 people he was charged with. So the trial was really only to determine whether he was legally sane or not. Right. So at some point, Mullen and Edmund Kemper were assigned adjoining cells. So it was kind of like... Oh my goodness! It was on purpose, and it was kind of like just to see what would happen. So... Oh, that's interesting. And if you know anything about Kemper, which we haven't gone into on this podcast, but I'm sure like if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested enough to know a little bit about Uh him. He is... Um, way above average intelligence, extremely, extremely smart. And so he, he made it his mission to hassle Mullen in any way he could. Interesting. Yeah. So he would do little things um, just to annoy Mullen. But yeah, so that was kind of like, I guess, your, one of your early prison experiments. Oh, interesting. I want to hear, did they, did they go into that in anything that you found? Um, no, nothing that I found, but I'm curious because it seems like it would be I mean, there is some stuff like because there was stuff about um, Kemper. He would say like, yeah, I used to tell I used to give Herbie cookies. He called him Herbie. And um, then like basically I got him to like I got him to trust me a little bit so that anything I could get from him, I would use against him. Uh But interesting. Smart people can be scary. Yeah. Like really smart. Edmund Kemper is really smart and really scary. But anyway, um, Mullen's trial began on July 30th, 1973. Uh And during the trial, he talked about the voices he had been hearing and that the voices had been telling him to kill. He referred to the messages he was receiving as, quote unquote, die songs, D-I-E songs. Oh. So the prosecution tried to show that like a lot of the stuff that Mullen did was premeditated, which you can kind of see when yeah. he, he pulls over and puts his hood up. That's he's waiting. He's lying. In, yeah. He's lying in wait for a lot of these things. Um, he purposely goes with weapons to people's houses. He, Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, he showed up to the, to, yeah, I guess he would with the gun, right? Yeah. Cause he shot him. So they were successful because Mullen was convicted of all 10 of the murders. He was sentenced to life in prison 
And he is today at Mule Creek State Prison, like literally today, because I looked it up. He's still alive? Yeah, he's 71 years old. And well, I he, guess that's not that old. He's eligible for parole in as early as 2020. So very soon. Yeah. Have they done any more tests or anything on his mental health while he's been in prison? It doesn't say. I, I couldn't find anything because the site that I used to find out if he's still currently in prison was very basic. Like it was literally just like his inmate number, where he's at. I mean, it was very basic. So um, the only other thing I saw was an article on Murderpedia where they talked about how he um, is wanting to go back to Santa Cruz once he's paroled. Will he be allowed to do that? We don't. I mean, who knows? So. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So that, I have to say, though, that looking for a crime related to earthquake was pretty depressing until I found this because. Well, this one's sad and depressing, too. Yeah, but the ones I kept finding were a lot of stuff about, like, um, assaults that took place after earthquakes and people getting taken advantage of. Because people were looting and being yeah, bad. Yeah, and I was Ugh. like, oh, this is just ooky. And Horrible. then I found this and I'm like, okay, at least there's an angle here because this guy like thought in his mind that he was preventing an earthquake. Well, and especially after the first time when it quote unquote worked. Yeah. Creepy. Oh yeah. my goodness. So, that... yeah, I mean. Interesting. It's interesting that they found him sane enough to go to prison though and not the hospital. Yeah. Especially given his previous hospital stay. Well, I think the prosecution did a good job of showing like some of the premeditation, but you caught on to that right away. Oh, I so can, yeah. it wasn't like, it. it's not like they had to dig it out, yeah. you know? Because if you're crazy and you're trying to just go kill a hitchhiker to keep the earthquake from coming, you're not going to lie in wait and lure him out. You're just going to go pick a guy and bludgeon him. Yeah. But he was specifically, he was and using... He was, he was waiting until he was in a point where he wouldn't be caught. Like, right. So he was alone on a road. Yeah. And he picked a person that people wouldn't necessarily miss. Right. You know. Yeah. He didn't take mom taking her kids to school. He picked a homeless person on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Which to me says he's trying to cover it up and keep it quiet as long as possible. And that's where the prosecution went with this. And that's why they were successful. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think I sound horrible in this. And I sound like a bad person. No. I'm criticizing. I'm not criticizing smart people, but I'm saying smart people are scary, and I'm saying <laughs> some smart people are. Edmund Kemper smart. He's scary. Edmund Kemper smart. Scary. Yes, I'm not bad. I'm not a bad person, and I have empathy for things, mental health, and I know. I just. I'm, I'm very self conscious about the way I sounded now. So edit all that out. No, I mean, <laughs> it's it goes back to the whole thing. We're not experts. Definitely not experts. We're just drunks. Totally. Hey, so if you like us, you can always let us know, uh, rate, review, any podcast catcher or whatever you call them that you listen to us on. Leave us a rating and a review. It would really help. Yeah. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. Cocktail suggestions. Send us cocktail suggestions. That would be fun. Yeah, we've we've been getting a lot and we love them, but keep them coming. Yeah. Another way to get a hold of us at for Twitter is at Time and Crime. Yeah, Instagram, we're also at Crime and Time. And check out our Facebook page. We always post little hints of the cocktail that's coming up and just fun little things. And that is Crime and Time on the Rocks or at Crime and Time OTR. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know. Cheers. Thank you for listening.